When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he would give you a land with large and beautiful cities that you did not build, houses full of every good thing that you did not fill them with, wells dug that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. And when you eat and are satisfied, be careful not to forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Fear Yahweh your God, worship him, and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you, for the Lord your God, who is among you, is a jealous God. Otherwise, the Lord your God will become angry with you and wipe you off the face of the earth. Do not test the Lord your God as you tested him at Massa. Carefully observe the commands of the Lord your God, the decrees and statutes he has commanded you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight, so that you may prosper and so that, and so that you may enter and possess the good land of the Lord your God swore to give your fathers by driving out all your enemies before you, as the Lord has said. I'm going to read from Acts chapter 11, starting at verse 19 to the end of the chapter. And then we're going to flip forward to uh, Acts 13 and just read the first three verses of Acts 13. Those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the message to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, Cypriot and Cyrenian men, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Hellenists, proclaiming the good news about Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, And a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Then the report about them was heard by the church that was at Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. When he arrived and saw the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with a firm resolve of the heart, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And large numbers of people were added to the Lord. Then he went to Tarsus to search for Saul and found him and he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught large numbers. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. In those days some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them named Agabus stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. This took place in the time of Claudius. So each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers who lived in Judea. And they did this, sending it to the elders by means of Barnabas and Saul. Now to chapter 13. In the church that was Antioch, There were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius the Cyrene, Manaean, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work I have called them to. Then after they had fasted, prayed, and laid hands on them, they sent them off. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Mel. It'd be great if you can keep that passage open. Uh, back in 2010, uh, Peter Jensen became the Archbishop of Sydney, the Anglican, Sydney Anglican Diocese, and he launched uh, his time as Archbishop with this audacious vision. You might remember, 10% of Sydney's population in church. How did that go? Partway through the decade, it wasn't looking great. And so our synod, our sort of council, decided, well, let's have one year where we're going to smash it. We're going to really push evangelism. We're going to call it Connect 09. We're going to connect people with Jesus. How did that go? Negligible growth. And so they decided, well, we're going to have another campaign called Jesus Brings. Nada. In case you think I'm just kind of poking fun at our diocese, 2015, Church by the Bridge is the year of evangelism. That's right. Introducing unbelievers to Jesus. We're all clear on this, aren't we? Communication problem. But you know what's happened? The smallest number of unbelievers at Christianity Explored courses than there has been for years. What do we learn from this? We could learn all sorts of practical things, but here's one thing we could learn. God is free in his mission. Just because we decide we're going to be on mission doesn't mean Christians are, people are going to be converted. Just because the church hierarchy says we're on mission now. It doesn't mean that people are suddenly going to flock into our churches because God is free in his mission. The church can't sit back and tell God how it's going to be. Right, God, we've decided we're going to be on mission at the moment of the next couple of years. Bring in 10%. We're going to bring in 10%. To be clear, I think uh, Peter Jensen and our synod and Paul Dale did wonderful things. They realized we are on mission. The church is always on mission. And they said, friends, we've got to focus on this, that we are on mission together. But they can't make mission successful. The church institution can't make people Christians. God does that. And God is free in his mission. I think that's what we learn from Acts chapter 11. Actually, Acts chapter 11 is kind of like um, a practical illustration of Acts 7. Stephen's persecution, you might remember Acts 7, where Stephen was persecuted. In fact, our passage this evening begins with just a little reminder of Stephen's persecution, so we might think of that. So do you remember it? Stephen's a guy who's been telling people about Jesus, and he gets brought to trial by the Jewish leaders, and he's standing there before them, and he has a bit of a rant. Um, he tells them their history from a particular angle. He says... You guys just want to box God to a place, the temple. But God's never been boxed into a place. God didn't even particularly want a temple. He's free. He's always been free. But you don't like that. You don't like a free God. You want to fit him in your box. You want him to fit in your ideas. Well, I got news for you, said Stephen. He's free. He's out of your box. His spirit. The Jews, did they like to hear that? The Jews, no, they didn't like that. They, they stoned him to death. But he was right. 
He's a very, it's a very human, institutional way of thinking about things, isn't it? God, you are in our box. God, uh, you are our thing. We are in control here. That's a very human way of thinking. Now, with that in mind, when Barnabas turns up to Antioch, he could well have found it a hard time because it was out of control. It wasn't done the way that the Jewish, uh, sorry, the Jerusalem church had kind of planned. And they wouldn't have planned it this way if they had. Because what happened in Antioch, it was the wrong people and it all happened the wrong way. I want to just kind of unpack those two things just for a few minutes. It was the wrong people. As far as the Jerusalem church were concerned, or could have been concerned, these could have been seen as the wrong people. See, for the Jews, when they looked out on the world, uh, it was kind of, the world was broken up into two, us and them. Jewish, non-Jewish. There's a big, big group over here. There's a little bit of gray in here, but pretty well it's black and white. Jewish or non-Jewish, that's it. And, and the Jesus thing is a Jewish thing, isn't it? Jesus was a Jew, he's the king of the Jews, fulfillment of the Jewish history, it's a Jewish thing, right? So let's read what happens in Antioch from verse 19. Those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen, because God is free, they made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the message to no one except Jews. Good. But, shock, there were some of them, Cypriot and Cyrenian men, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Gentiles, proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. Remember the big deal last week when Peter was going to speak to Cornelius, the non-Jew? He needed a lot of convincing, didn't he? And do you remember what the people thought about it, the other people who heard about it, what they thought? Just look with me, chapter 11 and verse 2. Peter goes to Jerusalem, and those who stressed circumcision argued with him, saying, you visited uncircumcised men and ate with them. This is a big deal. That the gospel would go to the non-Jews, the other side of the fence. But it's even bigger here because what happened last week was the gospel went to one guy, Cornelius, and his family. You know what? When they became believers in Jesus, they would have joined a kind of a, a Jewish-looking gathering, right? But what happens here in Antioch is we, we've got a whole church of kind of non-Jews. It's, it's kind of all a bit strange. You see, they're up now way, way far from Jerusalem, way up north, and they've got all sorts of people gathered together as disciples of Jesus. And the locals would have seen this and thought, what's going on here? Because there's this Jewish thing going on, but these guys aren't really Jewish. It doesn't look Jewish. What happens to our categories, Jew and non-Jew? It's all getting muddied. You see, these guys, they're definitely not Jews, and they're not doing stuff that looks Jewish, but they're definitely not pagan. They're not worshipping the emperor anymore. In fact, they're worshipping the king of the Jews. What's going on here? Who are they? What do we call them? Back in church history, they actually got called, the Christians got called a third race. Not Jew, not, not Jew, something else. 
Well, as we read in verse 26, they settled on the name Christian. And that's why you're called what you are today. Christians. But the question could be asked, what is God doing in Antioch? It's all wrong. These are the wrong people. It's all messy. It's not how the institution would have planned it, perhaps. As well as these people in Antioch being the wrong people, it all happens the wrong way, doesn't it? Uh, Let's look again at verse 20. Chapter 11 and verse 20. There were some of them, Cypriot and Cyrenian men, foreigners, who came to Antioch and began speaking. Hang on. What are their names? We don't even know. Who are these guys? They're not officially sent out from the Jerusalem church to do this particular job. There's no plan here. It just kind of happens. This is not how a well-organized institution does things, is it? But God is free in his mission. So with these things in mind, friends, you can imagine when Barnabas turns up to Antioch and sees what's going on, he could easily, he could easily through a hum, if he looked at it through a human lens, he could easily be threatened. He could easily think this is all wrong. He could easily start pointing out all the kind of problems with what's happened here. Because that's what we're like as humans, isn't it? So imagine, if you will, just to kind of, if you can, so you can agree with me, this is what we, what we are like as humans. You're at work. Um, you're in a team of engineers. You might need some imagination for this. I'm not sure. But your team has got this problem and you can't solve it. And this other department comes up with a solution. And it's the HR department. What do they know? And to make matters worse, management really like the solution. How are you feeling? A bit threatened? How would they know? You might be tempted to kind of point problems with it. I don't think the solution is as good as it looks. Do you know, we feel threatened by that, don't we? And we do this with church as well, you see. God in his freedom is working however he wants to work. He's doing his thing. And how do we respond? Well, that church over there that's growing, I think they've got dodgy theology. And that might might be right, but you see the attitude that it comes from, the place it comes from in our hearts? Kind of this defensive, threatened place. You hear of God doing these miraculous works, these great signs and wonders in these other churches, and you think, oh, they might, I think, they're a bit dodgy, those guys. Maybe they are, but the attitude, what's with that? We hear about even other congregations at our own church growing and flourishing, and there's a little bit of defensiveness from some of us. I'll say myself included. What's with that? It would be easy for Barnabas, when he turned up to Antioch, to feel exactly that way. This wasn't the Jerusalem church's idea. And yet, look at them. It's great. He could easily be threatened. But how does he respond? Look with me. Verse 23. When he arrived and saw the grace of God, he was glad. 
when he saw what was going on, he, he had a smile on his face. He loved it. Verse 24 goes on to say, for he was a good man. You see, we don't need that explanation for if this was a totally normal response. He was glad when he saw what God, what God was doing for For what? Who cares? Of course he was glad when he saw what God was doing. Unless that's not normal. Unless a normal human may well have been threatened, may well have wanted to point out all the problems, but Barnabas didn't. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. This man was full of faith in the God who was freely pursuing his mission. He had seen God doing it. He trusted this God to keep doing the work he was doing outside the institution, bringing his mission forward. And he trusted this God. He was a man full of the Spirit, a man who had the same heart as God, the same mind as God. You see, he knows that God's heartbeat is to bring reconciliation into this world, to reconcile sinners to God, to reconcile people to each other, to heal the fractures in our world between man and God and between people, to heal the hate and the racism and the factions and the competition. And when Barnabas turns up in Antioch, he sees that God's been doing exactly that work. This reconciliation, this healing, can only come into our world by a work of God's grace, a powerful work of his spirit. And when Barnabas turns up, he sees the grace of God. God's been at work here, he says. What do you think he sees to make him come to that conclusion? God's been at work here. This is God's grace. I assume he sees a bunch of people who are rejoicing in God, have joy in him. The great theologian Augustine defined grace as a sovereign joy in God. I assume they had that kind of joy. But I think he would definitely have seen it in another way as well, this this grace. Because when he turned up, he would have seen this bunch of people who were just from all sorts of walks of life, this motley crew gathered together. And what did he do? He joined them, this random bunch of people. And he thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get Saul, this uber-Jewish guy, and we're going to join you guys. So in verse 26, he gets Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church. They were part of it. This crazy gathering of all sorts. And we get a bit of a a sample population in chapter 13, verse 1. It's either the leadership of the church. Who does it consist of? Barnabas, Jewish guy. Simeon, who is called Niger, which kind of is roughly nigger. He's an African guy. Lucius, the Cyrenian. He's from Cyrene. Manan, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, he's a high-flying, dodgy Jew. And Saul, the uber-Jew, what, what a collection. All gathered in a house, praising Jesus, their rescuer. What we've got here is, is the grace of God at work to bring reconciliation to all sorts of people, together and to God. This is a new worldwide family. And there's a, there's a, a beautiful picture of it at the end of our passage. Look at me at verse 27. In those days, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. 
One of them named Agabus stood up and predicted by the spirit that there'd be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. And just so we know we're talking history here, this took place during the time of Claudius. So each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers who lived in Judea. They could have easily thought, well, prediction, there's going to be a famine in the whole Roman world. We'll look after ourselves, thanks very much. Sorry, Jerusalem. We're going to look after our own. You're not really part of us. It's not what they do. That's quite a human thing to do, right? It's not what they do. The grace of God is at work among them. They share with Jerusalem believers. Why? Because verse 29, they're family. Brothers, they call them. Can you imagine when Barnabas and Saul turn up in Jerusalem with this gift of money? And say to the Jerusalem elders of the church, um, here's a gift from your brothers in Antioch. Yeah, that's right, the ones you didn't go on mission to. How would they feel? Maybe rebuked? I don't know. Definitely delighted by God's gracious plan. Friends, this is the picture that that Barnabas arrives to in Antioch. This is what he sees. This is the grace of our God at work, the God who is still at work in our world today. Barnabas didn't look at it through a human lens. He wasn't threatened. didn't want to point out all the negative problems. He just turned up and looked at it through God's lens, the lens of faith. He saw that here is the work of the God who works out his mission in freedom. Outside of the institution, he does his thing. Through the institution, often, but he's just doing his thing freely. And so in verse 23, what does he do? He turns up, he sees the grace of God, he was glad, and he encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with a firm resolve of the heart. I love that line. He encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with a firm resolve of the heart. Keep going, guys. This is awesome what I see here. Keep going. Stick with it. It's a good line, is it? With a firm resolve of the heart. There's a little bit of a side point here, but friends, is that what you need to do? Have you made a firm resolve in your heart to stick with the Lord Jesus, thick or thin? It's quite a side point, but maybe that's what you need to hear tonight. Friends, God is freely at work in our world today, not just back here, still today, not under the control of church institutions. God is bringing new life by his spirit, bringing reconciliation into our world with him and with each other. 80 million Christian converts in China in the last bunch of years. No church institution. Friends, we must not be threatened by our free God as he goes about doing his mission. Even though it's not what we do, it's not how we do it, might not even be the people we would seek. We must not be threatened, but glad. Last week, Rob stood up. Not Rob Nichols. Quite different. (laughs) And interrupted the sermon. Were you here? Rob had some comments, rather colorful, about what Paul was saying. And we're talking to him afterwards. God seems to be doing a work in Rob. 
genuinely. He's not who we would choose. He's the wrong person. It's not the right way the path God has brought him down. But we ought to be glad. God is freely doing his work. Friends, please don't wait for our church, church by the bridge staff or whatever, to tell you how mission is going to work in your life. Look to God. Look around your life and the lives of those around you. What is God doing? See, our church together as an institution must plan mission. We must do that together. But we might decide we're going to push on this door, this group of people, whatever it is. And we might push and push and push and God doesn't open it. We need to look around to see what doors are already ajar, where God's already at work. We need to do that collectively as a church. So we're pushing in good directions. We try to seek God's will where he's going. But also as individuals, seek out where where is God at work in people's lives. It might be as simple as this. You're at work Monday morning. What did you do on the weekend? I went to church and another question comes. Just a bit of interest. It might just be that. It might just be the person you meet who's actually thinking. And not just thinking about entertainment and gadgets and relationships, but actually thinking. They're probably thinking wacky things. That's okay. They're thinking. I have a friend who um, thinks, well, it's beyond wacky. She's got these big crystals, right? These two massive crystals this big. And they're in between portals for angels to come and go into our realm. Now, for me, uh, I, I, that's, that's not an open door, I, I used to think. I, I can't connect with that. She came over to dinner on Monday night, and I had a bunch of people from church there for dinner, and we were just talking about Christian things, and she started asking questions. And, and one, of our, um, one of our Christian sisters, um, Annie, just went for it. Started talking to her about Jesus. No problem. Connection. And I was rebuked. That was an open door. The Lord was at work in her. She's thinking, she's thinking, she's thinking. Friends, we need to find those people and engage with them. Push where God is at work. And we need to pray. We as a church need to be praying big prayers that God would do a great work in our city, in his freedom. But also as individuals, praying prayers like this. Jesus, I am yours today. God, please don't let me have the attitude where I call you to help me with my purposes, but use me in your purposes. Help me to see what you're doing in this world and give me the courage and faith to step forward and follow you. I'll see what happens. Because, friends, do you remember who took the gospel to Antioch? You don't, because nobody knows. They were nobodies, like us. That's who God uses. Let's follow God as he freely pursues his mission. I just want to close with a few thoughts, because this could be quite imbalanced. Um, Is there any place for the church in mission? Of course there is. Um, I like to think of it like a plant. Um, 
you know when a plant grows, it's kind of got the bits on the ends that are the bits that are actually growing, and they're thin, right? Little flexible things, fleshy little things, and they're kind of, they're quite flexible. They can kind of, they can respond to what's happening. The sun's shining over there, they kind of turn over there, the sun's over there, they're kind of turning, and they're the bits that grow, the flowers and the fruit, all that sort of thing, yeah? But then further down, it's kind of woody and, and firm. You need to kind of snap those bits, they're not flexible. I feel like that's kind of the church. The church is like the woody bits. The, the, the bits on the end doing the growing and the fruit bearing can't do it unless the woody bits are holding them up and supporting them. And in fact, as those bits at the end grow and grow and grow, they all become woody eventually. This is kind of how our, our church works. The church hierarchy is not good at responding quickly, like an oil tanker, hard to turn around. Individual Christians are out there, different directions, like jet skis, easy to turn, responding to what God's doing. The church is supporting mission. I see this in in three very small ways here, Uh, not to say that this is the only ways the church should support mission, but three things happening in our passage. The first is the church has mission on the agenda. So chapter 13, they're praying to God that he would do his work and asking for his direction in it. Now, I hope you see that this is not a, a, a kind of a, a contradiction of what I was saying before. The church institution is not where mission happens, or that kind of it is. What I'm trying to say is this. It's about attitude. Our church must recognize that the Holy Spirit is the mission director, not the rector of our church. And we seek him together as a church. The second thing is this. The institution teaches, which is important to note. When the gospel goes to Antioch, uh, 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 sorry, Barnabas goes and gets Saul and they teach the church. It's important. He's not, Barnabas isn't threatened and negative, but he also isn't naive. Uh, this church needs to grow. And so he teaches them for a year. The church needs to be taught. I heard this week of a story about um, uh, Mexico, a church planner in Mexico, who came to a, an Australian missionary and said, can you please train our pastors? And so these two guys met uh, in, the, in the Mexican church planner's office, and on his wall was this map of Mexico with like 150 red dots on it. And Peter Scholl, the missionary, said, what are all those red dots? And the guy said, well, they're the churches we planted last year. 150. And then there was all these blue dots, and, and Peter said, what are the blue dots? He said, well, they're the place, place we're planning this year. 50, 50 dots. It's fantastic. But all these places, all these pastors are completely untrained. God's just doing this incredible work through them, but they need support. And so this guy had come to Peter and said, please teach us. Please train us. Please help us grow woody so that we can support the growth. It's a great thing that the church does, a necessary thing. And finally, the third thing is that the church uh, institution kind of helps organize the aid that goes on, helps the church care for the church. And so uh, the, the believers in Antioch freely give their money to the Jerusalem church, and they give it through their leaders to the elders of Jerusalem to organize this aid. And this still happens. We still give aid to Christians we don't know the names of, we've never seen before in other parts of the world. And the institution helps organize this for us. 
There's good things the church does. But friends, this year, 2015, it's meant to be, as you all realize, the year of evangelism, church by the bridge. Is that appropriate that we say that? Of course it is. The church is always the church on mission. But we're not the ones who decide when people will become Christians. We are not in control of God and his ways. God is free in his mission. That might sound negative, but I think it's a wonderful thing. Because God has not said to us, here's the mission, all the best. He has said, I'm on mission. I'm freely doing my mission in this world. Join me. By the power of my spirit, join me in testifying to Jesus. So friend, let's, let's do that. Let's look for where God's at work. Let's pray and let's join him in his mission. I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to sing again. God, we praise you as the God who loves this world. The God who has worked so graciously in your son Jesus to rescue our world, to show that you do love our world. You are keen to reconcile it to yourself. We do pray that you would help us to follow you into mission. We pray you do great things among us, Lord. Help us to see you at work. We pray you do great things for your glory's sake. Amen.